Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Terry, for inviting me to sit in your, sit in your chair for a, a Sunday. Um, when Terry asked if I could uh, speak as uh, just a guest speaker for you this week, I said, oh, I'd, I'd be happy to, but I don't really have a specific Easter message prepared. I said, I have a message that I just was uh, just prepared and just delivered for our church. My wife and I go to a Calvary Chapel in the northern beaches of Sydney. It's called One Love Church for those that know of it. Brad Hall is our pastor, and so Brad asked me to prepare a sermon as well uh, recently, and the sermon is on sin. I said, oh, I don't know how appropriate that's going to be, but Terry said, I think that sounds very appropriate, and uh, that's why I asked Dan to read that passage today from Isaiah 53. Um, if, I, if I had my do-overs and I had a, a week or so to prepare, I probably would have prepared a sermon on Isaiah 53 for you today, because for me, that's the, the best passage for an Easter celebration. Uh, it's a wonderful passage, obviously, for many reasons, um, one of which, of course, it's just beautiful poetry. So if you just appreciate well-written uh, prose, then you would, you would enjoy it. But also because of its prophetic significance, written roughly 700 years before Christ came and fulfilled um, virtually every word in that, in that uh, prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, culminating, of course, in his resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And that's why we come to church. That's why we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, and to me, it's just a, a beautiful thing. For me, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. So this is a particularly special, but I think it's something we should celebrate every week when we come together. So thanks for reading that for us. Uh, today, I'm, I really want to speak about that topic I referenced a moment ago, the topic of sin. Uh, it is a heavy topic. I know you've just finished a series in Romans, and I've, I have eavesdropped on some of Terry's sermons over the recent months, and I've really enjoyed the ones I've heard. Romans is hard-hitting and uh, definitely covers the topic of sin extremely well on multiple levels. Uh, And what I wanted to do today was sort of piggyback a bit on some of the things you've been hearing from Terry and from others, and I'll I'll come back to that others reference in a second. Piggyback on on it from more of a sort of um, case study point of view. So you've had a lot of wonderful theology and it's important that we have our theology right when it comes to topics like sin and salvation and righteousness and judgment. But I'm a pretty simple guy, and I do like my theology, but I also, I also need word pictures. I, I need the word pictures. I need the case studies. Uh, I, I, I like to think about you know, human examples of, of the reality of the truth of the Bible. And so today we're going to look at a case study. And it's a, it's a case study that I hope you find helpful. It's probably not the first one you'd think of when you, look, when you think about a story about the struggles with sin in the Bible. There are plenty of famous passages that you might think of, and this is where I'm going to make my other reference to a recent sermon you've heard. My son-in-law David uh, preached a few weeks ago uh, on the example of David and Bathsheba, for those that were here at the time. And I think it was uh, Psalm 51 that was the primary text And that is probably the best case study in the Bible for the struggles of sin. We all know what a great man David was. We all know how highly esteemed he continues to be in the church and in theology in general. 
And there's so many wonderful stories of his heroism and the things that he achieved for God and that God achieved through him. But he was also very, very flawed. Uh, and so that's, that's often uh, a case study that is used to, in, in some level, bring to life how easy it is for us to all fall and stumble. But I'm not going to go into David today. You've had a, a great opportunity to hear about that uh, from, from David Dean. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon if you haven't heard it. I think it was called Graciously Broken, uh, based upon Psalm 51. But today we're going to take a, a different sort of look. And what I want to do today is focus on a story that is found in Genesis chapters 13 to 19. So if you have your Bibles with you, it's the story of Lot. The story of Lot. I'm just going to give you a second to look it up. The reason I like the story of Lot, to be quite honest, and you're going to learn a little bit about me today, and for those that read the devotionals that I write every week, you've, you've probably picked up a few things about my past, because I, I tend to sort of make references to some of my experiences in the devotionals I write. You're going to get a little bit of that today as well. The thing I like about Lot is Lot sort of reminds me of me. Not in every respect, so I'll be quick to add that point on for those that are already sort of thinking about how Lot ended up. Uh, but in some respects, and I think in some important respects, Lot reminds me a lot of me. Now, just by way of background, um, what I want to do is just give you a quick refresher. So for those that don't quite know their Old Testament as well, uh, Lot was Abraham's nephew. So Abraham had a brother named Haran. Haran died at a relatively young age, and uh, Lot sort of was adopted, if you will, unofficially adopted by Abraham and became sort of Lot's um, dependent. Lot, Abraham became his guardian of sorts. And as such, Lot had a degree of protection and fatherly guidance um, from Abraham. Now, as you know the story of Abraham, uh, God directed Abraham to leave his pagan roots. I'm not gonna go into all of that with you today. You can certainly read about that in the earlier chapters of Genesis. It's, it's a fantastic story of faith. Uh, and God called Abraham to leave his pagan roots and to just basically just go until I tell you to stop and that's the land I want you to settle and it's going to become your land. Eventually we find out that that land is Canaan. So Abraham, along, and he was called Abram at the time, but Abram along with Lot and their extensive households, they ended up in Egypt for a while after they left their, their pagan roots. They ended up down in Egypt because of a, a big famine that had hit the land. And after a while, I've settled there and a few adventures that you can read about as well that happened to Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they eventually started moving their way back up again towards Canaan. So that's where we're gonna pick up the story today in Genesis 13. So I'm reading most of the references today from the ESV. Uh, there will be a couple of uh, sidetracks into a different translation later for specific purposes, but I'll make that clear to you. So otherwise we're reading from the ESV. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was, a very, was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, that means he worshipped. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks, and herds, and, and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together there. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram and the livestock, and the herdsmen of Lot and his livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. 
Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So as we read there, God had blessed both Abram and Lot greatly. It got to the point where they had to go their separate ways due to the lack of sufficient grazing land in that part of the country. They had enormous herds and flocks. Lot was about to step out on his own for the first time as far as we know in his adult life away from the relative protection and security of his uncle's spiritual wisdom and oversight. That's often how it plays out for us too, isn't it? It's in those moments of weakness when we step away from the spiritual oversight offered either through the the word of God that we read daily or the fellowship of the saints or time in prayer. We think we're doing pretty well. All things seem to be going good for us. We're blessed. We can make it on our own. We can sow our own oats, so to speak. We can go towards a different land, the greener pastures. That's often when we're at our most vulnerable. And that was what we see happens for Lot as well. It's when we choose to prioritize other things over the things of the Lord and over our relationship with him. That's when Satan attacks. So what we start to see from this point onwards in the narrative is I believe we're going to see a progressive slip down the slippery slope of sin. We're going to see Lot take one little step, and then another, and then another. And before you know it, and for those who know how the story ends, catastrophe strikes. So I think there are three distinctive steps, progressive stages, if you will. We see Lot being attracted by the allure of prosperity. We see there for the Lot being attracted by the potential for pleasure. And then finally, we see Lot being attracted by power. Prosperity, pleasure, and power. We're going to look at each of these three in turn. And after we've looked at those three steps down the slippery slope that Lot chose, we're going to also look at three grave consequences that resulted from Lot's choices. So first, the allure of prosperity. As we read in Genesis 13.9, Abraham graciously gave Lot the, the pick of the land. Abraham was a very thoughtful, selfless father figure, if you will. He was willing to let Lot make the choice. Isn't it that way with us, those of us who are parents? We often give our kids the best that we can possibly give. We give them the choices. We want them to decide for themselves in the wisdom that God has given them what the right choice is. We want them to learn those lessons for themselves. And I think that's what Abraham was doing for Lot. I think God was using Abraham as an instrument in Lot's life to give Lot an opportunity for growth, to make the mature choice. And we know what Lot's choice was. Lot didn't take... Abraham's example of selflessness, Lot went for that gold ring, and he was very quick to pick the best land for himself. So in his pursuit of even greater prosperity, remember Lot was already a very wealthy man, potentially off the back of his uncle, but nevertheless, he had plenty of wealth, so much so that the land couldn't sustain him and his uncle. So despite that great prosperity, he demonstrated his selfish nature, and he chose that Jordan Valley. 
and it said that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. For those that are movie buffs like me, you know there's always these little tells that happen early in the movie. It's either like through the music or some little uh, montage or some little image in, the, in a scene. You go, ah, that's, that's a hint. Something's going to come later. I've got to keep my eye on that one. And that's the first hint that we get. He moved his tents towards Sodom. It's at this point that the narrative gives us our first ominous clue about the extent of Sodom's moral depravity. It says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In our New Testaments, in the little tiny letter of Jude, in verse 7, we get a little bit more of the detail about this place. It's written in Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Interesting use of phrase, serve as an example. Example for what? I think it's an example that there is a point of no return, that there are times in the lives of countries, communities, churches, possibly even individuals, where God finally says, enough is enough. It's time for this to stop. We see examples of that in the Old Testament. I just recently read in my quiet time, I'm working through Numbers, the sons of Korah, the famous story of the supposed you know, leaders, religious leaders. They were sons of Levi, and they turned their back on God and rebelled against Abraham and against Aaron. And what happened? The earth opened up, swallowed them all. Then there's a New Testament example, a very famous one in the book of Acts, of Ananias and Sapphira. There's others we can think of. We can think of um, the story when Joshua attacked uh, Jericho, and then, what was his name, the guy who took all the, the money and wasn't supposed to take the money, and then he and his family were judged because he broke God's law. I think there are examples put in the Bible for us. They're not necessarily normative. Sometimes they sort of stick out like sore thumbs, just like this example does, about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah but they're telling. It's God's way of saying, wake up, pay attention. This is in here for you. Don't make the mistakes of the sons of Korah. Don't make the mistakes of Ananias and Sapphira. Don't make the mistake of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot headed straight for one of the most sinful cities on the planet, as far as we know at that time, and he pinched his, pitched his tents just outside, which would have provided him with ready access to all the commercial opportunities. He's a clever guy. He knew that that's probably the best place to go and make more money. We make similar choices in our lives, don't we, in the pursuit of greater prosperity? This can take many different forms, of course, and it's not up to me or anyone else to tell us what's the right choice or the wrong choice. But for some of us, and this is now speaking about myself, I told you you'd hear a little bit about my story here. For some of us, it's about our career. And I think, I think this is where I, I identify the most with Lot. There was a point in my life where I was very, very ambitious and I, I really wanted to achieve. And you know, God gave me the opportunity to use the skills and the talents and the education that he gave me. And I was able to achieve, but that came at a cost. I moved my family across to another country, lived in a different city, a city that was thriving at the time, Seattle, Washington, for those that know it. It was the boom time, the dot-com boom. I was working for a dot-com, I was working for Microsoft. Plenty of companies were moving into Seattle. They were all doing extremely well. It was a, a very prosperous time for, for that company that I worked for, for that part of the country, and for that industry as a whole. But there was a cost. I didn't see my family very much. I traveled 40% of the time. I had an international role. I was stressed out a lot. You can just ask my wife about that later. 
I'd lose a lot of weight, then I'd put on a lot of weight, depending on how I was responding to the stress. My kids were growing up so quick, and I wasn't able to spend the time with them that I wanted to spend with them. Then the real telling point came when my eldest daughter, Sara, came home from school, and she started to say things about what her friends were doing and the kinds of parties they were going to. And we'd go to some of these friends' houses, and we'd see how they were living, the choices they were making. Many of them were Christians, by the way. And Dean and I looked at each other, and we said, we've got to get out of Sodom. Uh, it's time for us to move back to Australia, back to our roots. We want to raise our kids in a place where they can be closer to extended family and closer to the Christian roots that we know are important for them. So I took a, uh, uh, took a big chance in my career, and I stepped back out of that, that track. And I think God blessed it, and we're so grateful for that choice, and I don't regret it at all. So in that sense, Lot had a choice to make, right? He, he moved towards Sodom. I moved towards Seattle. Let's see how the story continues from there. It's not a simple proposition. We all have to make a living. We have to provide for our kids. We don't want to be a burden on anybody else, on society or on our relatives. It's also important, I believe, and I come from an HR background for those that, that don't know, I think it's important to be intellectually stimulated with your work. I think it's important to use the God-given gifts that you have, to not just do a job that bores you, to not just do something because it happens to pay the bills. If you can find a job that you get some, some kind of satisfaction out of, you can be engaged in it, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And if it pays the bills as well, that's fantastic. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it's about a balance, isn't it? It's about a balance between being a good provider, being a good uh, parent to your kids, or a good child to your aging parents, like we're now in that stage of life. It's wonderful to be able to provide for your, your family but at the same time, you have to think about what the cost is to, you, to your family on the spiritual side of the equation. It's all wrapped up together. It's not a zero-sum game. It is complex, but we have to make wise choices. I like the way Jesus put it. Why not quote the master himself? Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we left Lot basically pursuing the almighty, I don't know, what was it, a drachma? Uh, we'll just call it a dollar. He was basically trying to make as much dough as he could, trying to extend his already uh, amazing wealth and he's moving towards Sodom. So let's see what happens next in the narrative. Now I'm calling this the allure of pleasure. And I, I have to say, I, I think it, I'm reading something into the story. So that's why I'm calling it the prospect of pleasure. And I'll come back to that point a little later on. But I still think it's relevant to, to all of us in terms of the choices we make in life about the, the priorities that we put on things. So Lot wasn't content for long living just outside the city. Um, he basically chose to move in the city. And how do we find this out? We pick it up in a very unusual story, which is in Genesis 14. We find Lot is living now in the heart of Sodom. But it's kind of told to us as almost a side note. And if you're reading through Genesis quickly, which I would advise against, you might miss these little things along the way. They're a little like breadcrumbs that God drops for us. And it's just passing along the way that this incredible story of these kings who invade the countryside, and I'll come into that in a moment, and it just happens to say that, you know, when these kings came along, Lot was living in the city. 
oh, hold on, he was living outside before, now he's in the city. Am I supposed to notice that? Does that matter? I think it does. I don't think anything's in the Bible by accident. So Genesis 14, 11 to 12, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, not outside, in. And they took all his possessions, and they went their way. There's a couple of interesting things you can note about this. First of all, they just assumed Lot was part of the community. They didn't make any distinction. Lot was just swept up with the rest of the Sodomites, and that's literally what they were called. You can, you can look at the etymology of the word to understand how we use it now, but they were Sodomites. They were from Sodom. That's what they were called. He was caught up with them and taken away into captivity. So the backstory is there was war going on. The Sodom and Gomorrah and a couple of the other kings in that area were basically under the authority of these four other kings. And these other kings you know, were basically you know, taking, taking them advantage of them as people did in those days when one country was dominating another country. So there was a bit of a mini revolt and it worked, it worked itself out into this war. So these four kings made a raid. They took all the inhabitants of Sodom, all the inhabitants of Gomorrah, which included Lot and his family. So A, what's Lot doing in the first place? B, why does he look like the rest of them? And C, why do they go after him? Because obviously he was doing very well. So they steal all his stuff and his family and off they go. Now the story could end there and it could still be pretty um, educational for us. We could, we could sort of take it as a moral fable. You know, this is what happens when you go after the big almighty dollar and you turn your back on God. You know, stuff rains down on you and it's into the story. But God is so amazing, isn't he? God did not give up on Lot, just like he doesn't give up on you and he doesn't give up on me. God had other plans for Lot. So we see what God does here. He intervenes. God is extremely faithful. He gave Lot a chance to repent. Now this part of the story we're not going to read in detail, but basically Abram gets word that Lot and, and his family and all his possessions have been taken off in this raid. So miraculously, Abram goes to his guys. He's got his own little private army, his own security force, if you will. And he says, guys, we've got to go rescue my nephew and his family. And how many were there? There's 318 of them. It's not a huge army by any stretch of the imagination. And they're fighting four kings. Now, we don't know exactly how many soldiers these four kings had, but I'm sure it was a, a large percentage more than 318, probably multiple factors of, over that number. And so Abram goes and he miraculously saves Lot, brings them all back, gets all the money back, everything, all the family. Nobody, nobody in Lot's family is, is killed or injured, as far as we're told. So this is where we're going to pick it up again. So not only is Lot rescued, right? So you think that would be a bit of a wake-up call. Oh my gosh, so I made the choice. I went and lived in Sodom. I got caught up with all the, the pleasures and, and the prosperity of Sodom. And then I, because of that, I was taken away into captivity, almost lost my life, and all my family was almost killed. Just imagine it. It's horrific stuff. It's, it's really, really dramatic. But he's saved. But not only is he saved, listen to the conversation that happens that Lot is listening to between Abraham and Melchizedek, who is a mysterious king of Jerusalem at the time. He's a priest king, a unique Christ-like character in the Old Testament. And as far as I can work out, he and Abraham must have known each other. They had some kind of mutual respect. They're both God-fearers. And so after Abraham saves Lot miraculously, Melchizedek shows up. And there's this incredible conversation. 
in Genesis 14, 19 to 23, between Abraham and Melchizedek, and Lot is listening. And here's another one of those little tidbits that we might miss. The king of Sodom is listening to this conversation. He was rescued as well. Now, for the Bible scholars, there's a dispute about whether the original king of Sodom was killed in the battle, and this is the new king who took over shortly thereafter. We'll leave that debate for another day. But nevertheless, the king of Sodom at the time, whether it was the same king or not who was first attacked, he's listening to this conversation as well with Lot. So picking it up from Genesis 14, 19. And he, that is Melchizedek, blessed him, that is Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. How generous of him, huh? But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Isn't that an amazing conversation? Now remember, Lot's listening to this. Abram was a living example of how to serve the living God and how to prioritize the competing demands of life. Abraham had a lot to look after too. He had big responsibilities, big family, lots of servants, lots of possessions, lots to do, every opportunity to be distracted from his faith in the Lord. But he never forgot who he worshiped. His devotion, his faith, his obedience to God superseded all else. He had his priorities straight. He wanted no part of the prosperity, the pleasure, or the power of Sodom. If only Lot had followed his uncle's example. It was Lot's unwillingness to resist the pleasures and prosperity of Sodom that got him into this pickle in the first place. The Bible doesn't specify, but something in that city acted as a powerful, attractive force in Lot's life. He kept going back. In an effort to escape temporarily from our stressful lives, we too can be drawn into pleasure-focused life choices. They trap us in the web of potentially sinful behavior. Things which, done, things which, if done in moderation or with wisdom, might be perfectly innocent, for some people can be addictive and destructive. So when I was pursuing my career and I was getting stressed out, what did I do to try to find escape? I started watching a lot of TV. And of course, back in those days, and I'm dating myself here, you know, we didn't have um, streaming media. In fact, just a little bit of an old, old guy joke, Netflix was DVDs you got in the mail. Anybody remember that? Or am I the only one? Oh, there's one gray-haired person in the back. <laughs> we remember the original Netflix. You literally had to send off, and then they would send you a DVD, and you'd watch it, and you had to send it back in so many days. It saved you the trouble of going all the way down to um, Blockbuster, or whatever they were called, the video stores. That was Netflix. So we didn't have all the choices that we have these days. But I used to spend a lot of time just losing myself in sport or the news or whatever would happen to be on the TV instead of spending time with my wife and kids. And that became an escape for me. And I knew it wasn't a healthy escape just because I wasn't spending the quality time that I should have been. And it can be other things. I know that I mentioned before, my weight would go up and then my weight would go down. So I wasn't being the best in terms of my diet. And for some of us, that can be a real struggle when we get stressed out because we, we let other priorities take over. I'm not going to sit here and you know, fill in the blanks for you or tell you what is right or what is wrong. It's not about that. It's about, it's about balance. It's about having the right priorities in our life. And it's about keeping God first. So Lot went straight back. How do we know Lot went straight back? 
Well, we're going to pick it up again. I'm going to turn to, um, I'm going to skip a couple of things here just in the interest of time. No, I do want to read one verse. Sorry, before we pick up the story with Lot um, going back into, into Sodom, I want to pick up uh, a really important passage for us about the warnings that we get. I want to read for you 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 14. So often when we get on these slippery slopes, God will give us little warning signs, just like he gave Lot. He gave Lot a pretty dramatic warning sign. And it's one that I'm, I'm shocked, you know, in hindsight that he missed. But sometimes I think people might look at me and be shocked at the warning signs that I miss because, you know, for us, it always doesn't seem as obvious as it might to somebody outside. So I want to read for you 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 14. It's a very encouraging passage that Paul writes to the church there at Corinth. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So idolatry is, you know, it's a, it's a big word, but basically it means anything that we put in place of God. Anything that takes um, power of place before God, whether it be something that is in the pursuit of prosperity, pleasure, or power, that becomes an idol in our life. But God always provides the way out. But here's the thing. We've got to take the exit. When we see that escape hatch, we've got to be willing to walk through it. He's not going to force us to take it. God loves us too much. He wants us to be able to choose the right thing because that's how we learn and that's how we show that we love him. Lot was offered an incredible opportunity to come back under his uncle's supervision of spiritual um, guidance um, and he didn't take the opportunity. So the allure of power. We see Lot now. He doubles down. Um, and this is another one of those little references that if you don't really pay attention or you're not sort of looking carefully at the meaning, it could be missed on you. So let's pick up on Genesis 18. I know we're moving quickly through this. There's a lot of narrative. There's no way we could read it all. I'm just trying to pick the highlights for you. You can go back and read the whole story for yourself later. It's, it's a fascinating read. But if you could turn to Genesis 18, verse 20. So again, just to bring you up to speed... So we've had the visit from Melchizedek. We've had the amazing story, the, the miraculous um, salvation for Lot and his family from, from these uh, invading kings. And then there's another fascinating story. Um, Abram gets visited by the Lord himself and two angels. Um, and we're not going to read all of that incredible encounter. But there's, a, there's multiple reasons why Jesus shows up. Um, there's a lot of, of, of um, important stuff going on between God and Abram himself and the promised son who's going to come and, and all that goes with the covenant that's between Abraham and the Lord. But the secondary story is still important to God, right? Sometimes we can get so caught up with the primary that we lose sight of the secondary. And God still cares about Lot. God still cares about what's going on down there in the valley, in, the, in that Jordan Valley. So there's this huge priority about Abrahamic covenant and yet there's this interesting little side story going on. And so these, these two angels are sent by the Lord down to Sodom because the evil has reached the ears of the Lord. And this is one of those examples. It just got to the point of no return. So Genesis 18, verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Don't you love that? God knew what was going on. God doesn't need to go down and physically look. It's all there for us. It's all there for, for his children to learn from. If not, I will know. Of course he'll know. 
So the men, this is referring to the angels that came with the Lord, the men turned from there and went down towards Sodom. But Abram stood before the Lord. Then we'll skip over that whole section between the conversation between Abram and the Lord, and then we jump down to verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom, and this is the bit that I don't want you to miss. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. That's one of those little tidbits. So what? Big deal. Lot was sitting at the gate. Maybe he'd been out going for a walk, and he came back. He was tired. He sat down at the gate. The angels happened to come in when he was sitting at the gate. Why should we care? In ancient times, the city gates of these towns were where the town elders used to meet. They met there to discuss and decide on disputes or general civic matters. Basically, they were the town council. Lot had essentially become part of Sodom's local government, which provided him with power and control over the commercial, judicial, and social aspects of community life. Lot was not just being influenced by their culture, Lot was now helping to shape it. As a result of a subtle series of choices, Lot and his family became entangled with Sodom's society, along with all the associated values. He was putting his family right in the heart of harm. In the futile effort to find peace among the chaos of our sometimes overly busy and complicated lives, we too succumb to the desire for greater control, don't we? This is human nature. When I feel under pressure and I start to feel a little bit panicky and anxious, what do I do? I want more control. So I start to try to force things around me to move a certain direction. I might become a little bit difficult with my family. Maybe I'll start showing my anger or my frustration at work. Maybe I'll start ordering things in my life to suit my desires because I want greater control and that futile attempt to try to find some degree of peace in the midst of the chaos that I've put around myself because of the choices that I have made. I think this is what we see happening with Lot. It's also furthering his prosperity. He now has a greater opportunity to influence the commercial dealings of, of what's going on in that town. Perhaps he did have some good intentions. We'll come back to that point later. Maybe he thought, if I get on the town council and run for, you know, whatever, mayor, maybe I can start influencing this evil city for the Lord. Maybe I can start, you know, sharing some of the, the truth of God with these people. Maybe there were some good intentions there, but he was playing with fire. And that's uh, both figurative and literal. So we also want to be masters of our own destiny. We want to call the shots. We increasingly ignore what God wants us to do in our lives as he's outlined in, our, in, in his word. And Lot, as far as we can tell, finally got the trifecta. He had prosperity, he had the opportunity for pleasure, and he certainly had some power. So what was the cost? As we said before, the evils of, of Sodom had reached the ears of the Lord, as it was so um, interestingly put before in that passage that we read, and God decided to erase them from the face of the earth. Deliberate, persistent, unrepentant sin will be judged. It will eventually be punished. And sometimes that happens through a variety of physical means, and sometimes God physically removes people, like in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He removes them from this earth, and he, pr he uh, promotes them to heaven. We have no reason to think that Ananias and Sapphira weren't believers. There's no reason to think they're not in heaven. But they made some bad choices, and they were, they were punished for it. There may have, there may have been um, people in Lot's own family. We don't know what exactly was in their hearts. We know about Lot because the Bible tells us. We don't know about his wife. We don't know about his daughters. We don't know where they ended up in eternity, but they paid a, a heavy penalty on earth. 
So there was a fascinating dialogue between Abraham and the Lord where Abraham's pressuring the Lord about, do you really have to kill everybody? Do you really have to wipe out these cities? It's pretty dramatic stuff. And, you know, they go down. He starts with a, a larger number. If there's, you know, X number of people who are righteous, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And the Lord suggests if there's that many. He says, well, what if there's a smaller number and a smaller number? He ends up with a number 10. Now, again, Bible scholars will dispute that the number 10 was it arbitrary or did, did Abram have a, 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 a number in mind? You know, were there actually 10 members in Lot's family? And that's why he wanted 10 people to be the threshold for, for saving the city. Be that as it may, as we find out, there weren't even 10. So we know that much. We know there weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around. So we do know, as I said, there's a passage in the New Testament that tells us that right, sorry, that Lot was righteous. We find that in 2 Peter 2.8. You don't have to turn there. You can just make a mental note. 2 Peter 2.8 says that Lot was righteous. And the way that we understand his righteousness is the way that um, we think about you know, Old Testament saints as a whole. Their faith was reckoned to them as righteousness. And none of them were perfect, but a lot of them were righteous. Abraham clearly was, and we now know from Peter that Lot was as well. So he was righteous before God. And if we are spirit-filled, our souls should grieve, just like Lot's soul, we're told, Lot's soul grieved. Our souls should grieve in the presence of sin. We should find it repulsive. We should not find it attractive. That's one of the things about Romans that I'm sure you, you touched on when, when Terry took you through it, particularly I think it's chapter 6 and 7 from memory, where, where Paul has this incredible um, way of talking about the effect of sin and how he becomes slaves to sin. And then he makes the contrast to being slaves to righteousness. And the way that I understand that idea is that what are you a slave to? You're a slave to something you have, you have like no, no control over. It controls you. So if righteousness controls me, that means that I want to be righteous. I crave it. I desire it. And, and that's the goal that I think we have. And that's what, you know, sin should be the opposite of that. Sin should be something repulsive to us, not attractive to us. Righteousness should be what we're attracted to. So while Lot's original motives may have been good, and while we do know it, ultimately he had a righteous heart, he made a series of very unwise choices. He did ignore, ignore God's gracious warnings along the way. And as we're going to find as we get to the last part of this talk, Sodom literally permeated his family system. Just like a cancer, it worked its way into his family system. So there were some very obvious and direct consequences to Lot's choices that we're going to read about now in Genesis 19. So if you're following along, you can turn to Genesis 19. Often we make short-sighted choices because of our desires and because we don't have the benefit of God's omniscience and his, the benefit of his foresight, we can't predict what the negative consequences of our short-term choices are going to be. That is why we're told to trust in the Lord. That is why we're told to follow his word and to let the word shape our hearts and our minds. Because if we make our decisions based upon his word, we don't have to worry about the consequences. The consequences will turn out the way God wants them to turn out, which we know is always in our best interest. So, as is often the case, Lot's short-sightedness caught up with him. We see this tragically unfold in Genesis 19. Now, this section is MA, so I'm glad the kids aren't here. It's for mature audiences only. And I'm actually going to do something a little bit unusual. I'm going to read this in the NLT. There are certain parts of the Bible that some of our translations, in my opinion, sugarcoat. Uh, they take words from the original language and they make them kind of nice for our English listening ears. And unfortunately, because of that, we sometimes lose the true impact of what I think is going on and what we're supposed to learn. 
This to me is an example of that. So I'm going to read Genesis 19, 1 to 26. It's rather long, but believe me, it's not boring. So if you fall asleep in this, then you'll fall asleep in any, any good drama on TV. Genesis 19, 1 to 26, and I'm reading in the NLT. Warts and all, guys. Here we go. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my house to wash your feet and be my guests for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. He was wanting to get him out of Sodom as quickly as possible. What was Lot worried about, I wonder? Hmm, the mind boggles. Oh no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. Yeah, right. But Lot insisted, verse 3. So at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded Lot's house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind himself. Please, my brothers, he begged. Did you notice he called them brothers? Don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you wish. But, but please, leave these men alone, for they are my guests and are under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to our town as an outsider, and now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than these other men. And they lunged toward Lot to break down the door. But the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. Then they, the angels, blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house, so they gave up trying to get inside. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city? They asked. Get them out of this place, your sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else, for we are about to destroy this city completely. The outcry against this place is so great it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, Quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. At dawn, verse 15, the next morning the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot hesitated, that just gets me every time I read it. When Lot hesitated, the angel seized his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city. Why? For the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, Run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Oh no, my lord, Lot begged. You have been so gracious to me and saved my life, and you have shown us such great kindness, but I can't go to the mountains. Disaster would catch me up there, and I would soon die. See, this, uh, there's a little village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. All right, the angel said. I will grant you your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. This explains why that village was known as Zoar, which means little place. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur 
from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. As this graphic account indicates, there are a number of significant downstream effects of Lot's poor life choices. We're going to look at three. First of all, we see that Lot's daughter's fiancés ignored the warning of divine judgment and chose to stay in Sodom to their own demise. They were so caught up in the life and culture of Sodom, they couldn't see or believe the truth when it was staring them in the face. And what does that tell us about Lot's testimony before his own sons-in-law? They didn't believe him. What kind of credibility did Lot have with his own extended family? It's a sobering thought. I've got unsaved family. I'm sure many of you do as well. I've made lots of efforts to try to reach my unsaved family members for the Lord. Various ways of trying to share my faith, share the gospel, be a good role model. But there are members of my family who grew up in church, just like me, went to Sunday school, memorized all the verses, and as they came into adulthood, for a variety of reasons, they've chosen to go their own way. They've chosen the worldly philosophies and lifestyles over God and his truth and his promises. My efforts to save them from destruction have often been met with silence, sometimes with polite condescension, and sometimes even mocking. Now granted, each person is accountable before God for their own choices. No one who rejects God's truth can point their finger at somebody else and blame them for the choices that they have made. In Galatians 6, 7-9, Paul wrote, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. However, even though others are responsible for their own choices, when people we love, people we've witnessed to, or people who watch our lifestyle choose the wrong choice, make the wrong choice, go the wrong direction, it can have a heavy emotional burden on us. I have a heavy heart for my family members who don't follow the truth. Lot's testimony didn't have the credibility that maybe it should have had. What about mine? What about yours? When our family members look at us, do they see someone who's different from the world? Do they see someone who's made godly choices aligned with the Bible? Or do they see somebody who is one way on Sunday or another way when he's in pastor mode or whatever mode, and then he doesn't follow through in his daily life? It's something for us to think about. Jesus gave a very stern warning on this point in Matthew 18.6 when he said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, Jesus is speaking about those who deliberately choose to mislead. I know that that's a, a different point he's making, but it makes us pause and think. Am I in some way, even unintentionally, misleading somebody, not pointing them in the right direction? So there are two types of mistakes we can avoid here. Let's avoid the mistake of Lot, by making sure we don't live a compromised life that could give people the wrong idea. And let's avoid the mistakes of Lot's sons-in-law who chose to reject the truth and decided to stick with the lifestyle that they, they had chosen in Sodom. Let's not undermine the message by our lifestyle choices and let's not doubt God's word and ignore his free gift of salvation. 
There's another consequence. This is the one that I think most people focus on when they think about the story of Lot. And this was the consequence that his wife suffered. When they escaped from the, the doom and gloom and the fire and brimstone that was raining down on Sodom and on Gomorrah, they were safe. They were far enough away. They had reached this small town, if, if you follow the narrative closely. So Lot's wife was safely far enough away, but she turned and looked. Now, some people criticize the Bible at this point, and they think, well, that's a bit harsh. She might have just been curious. Well, God is pretty good in his word by giving us um, opportunities to find out the truth. And if you look at the original language, that look back was not just a look of curiosity. It was a look of longing. And if that's not enough for you, Jesus' own reference in Luke 17, 28 to 33, puts it out of our mind. It puts, it puts it out of doubt, rather. She was looking back for the wrong reasons. The implication is she was longing for Sodom. She was longing for her life there. That's where her heart was. She was physically saved, but her heart was still in Sodom. And that is why she was judged. And that's how insidious this slippery slope of sin can be in, the, in our lives. It grabs a hold of our minds until we struggle to discern good from evil. Sometimes it seems to consume us completely, crystallizing our hearts against the prompting of God's spirit. We become immune, we become hardened to the truth of the Lord. Not a good place to be. In Paul's brief letter to Titus, he wrote in Titus 1, 15 to 16, to the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's not be Lot's wife. Let's not turn back. Let's not let our heart be taken by the world. There's a third and final consequence, and in my view, this is the most profound and most disturbing consequence of the whole story. This is a consequence of the generational effect of sin. Lot's sad story continues. We pick it up in Genesis 19, verse 30. It's the story of Lot's daughters. His daughters may have escaped physical destruction and gotten away with their father. They did go to that little town, by the way. They didn't last long. That little town turned out to be not such a happy place after all. We can speculate as to why. Maybe they had some idea that Lot was somehow connected to the doom of Sodom and Gomorrah and they turned on him. Maybe it was you know, the Holy Spirit working in, in, in uh, Lot's life to get him to realize that this was just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. It was part of the same community. It was no different. So what they did is they ended up in the mountains. So that's where we're going to pick up this story. So while his daughters were saved, they were physically saved, Sodom came with them in their hearts. And that's, that's what we're going to read about in this very graphic section. I'm going to read this in the NLT as well for the same reason I gave earlier. Genesis 19, 30 to 36, New Living Translation. Afterward, Lot left, Lot left Zor because he was afraid of the people there, and he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. One day, the older daughter said to her sister, There are no men left anywhere in this entire area, so we can't get married like everyone else, and our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk with wine, and then we will have sex with him. That way we'll preserve our family line through our father. So that night, verse 33, they got him drunk with wine, and the older daughter went in and had intercourse with her father. He was unaware of her lying down or her getting up again. The next morning, the older daughter said to her younger sister, I had sex with our father last night. Let's get him drunk with wine again tonight, and you go in and have sex with him. That way we will preserve our family line through your fa our father. So that night they got him drunk with wine again, and the younger daughter went in and had intercourse with him. 
As before, he was unaware of her lying down or her getting up again. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. When the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. He became the ancestor of the nation known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Ben-Ami. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Ammonites. A pretty horrific story. This is one of those stories in the Bible we might be tempted to ignore because it is so distasteful. It's so despicable. It goes to show that the Holy Spirit pulled no punches in inspiring the human authors of the Bible. I think it all speaks to the gritty and grimy nature of sin, and it's a stark warning to us all. You just can't make this stuff up. But what about Lot's responsibility in all this? Think about it. I'm a dad. I've got daughters. I've got grandsons. What effect are my choices having on them? Lot chose, to raise, Lot chose to raise his daughters in the heart of an evil city. He betrothed them to two of the local pagans and seemed willing to sacrifice his girls to a lustful, murderous mob in a foolish attempt to appease the mob. Not exactly a good parental role model of moral conduct. The consequence was that the descendants of the incestuous relations between Lot and his daughters became the Moabites and the Ammonites who became perennial enemies of Israel just like a thorn in the side. You can read about it all through the Old Testament. It's worth noting that in his efforts to gain greater prosperity, greater pleasure, and greater power, Lot lost everything. He literally ended up living in a cave. So let's sum it up. Despite God's strong and direct warnings, Lot hesitated to leave the prosperity, pleasures, and power he had enjoyed in Sodom. He had to be dragged away, kicking and screaming. Again, we see God's grace and his long-suffering towards Lot. Sometimes, that's what it takes. God dramatically intervenes in our lives. He has to rescue us from our slippery slopes. We don't pay attention to the warnings, but he's gracious. He gives us second, third, and fourth chances. Like us, Lot demonstrated questionable character and made poor choices. But God still saw him as righteous, as we, as we mentioned earlier in 2 Peter 2. Like Abraham, despite his many mistakes, Lot's faith in God was reckoned to him as righteousness, and Abraham's faith was also recognized by God in his decision to spare Lot from Sodom's destruction. It's a really interesting little anecdote, if you will, at the end of the story. We go back to Genesis 19 and read verses 27 to 29. 27 to 29 of Genesis 19. I'm back to the ESV now. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3.15, doesn't it? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. I don't want that to be on my tombstone. I want to be saved, but I don't want to be saved as yet through fire. But praise God for his amazing grace. We are all lost without it. Our modern world looks a lot like Sodom. While we are called to be in the world, we are not to be of the world. We read that in John 17. 
We need to guard our hearts and our minds from its allures. It all starts in the mind. Our thoughts are the soil from which our behaviors emerge. Paul said it best in Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewals of your mind, by, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Every little choice we make matters. There are plenty of slippery slopes all around us. In order to see them clearly and to avoid them, we need to prayerfully seek God's guidance through His Word every day. And when we do slip up, which we will and I will, we know God is always ready to pick us up and restore us to Himself. I'd like to close just by reading Romans 8, 31-39 on this Resurrection Sunday. Feel free to turn there if you want to. Romans 8, 31-39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall, separate us from, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are such a gracious God. Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for your word that you've given to us to be our guidebook, our shining light in this dark world. Thank you for everything that's in the Bible, even the little side stories that sometimes we don't pay as close attention to as we should. Thank you for the story of Lot. I know I'm going to meet Lot one day, and I know he's a brother, and I'll see him in heaven. He had, he had some difficult times as a result of some choices he made, Lord, but I can relate a lot to Lot. I thank you for his example that's in your word that helps me to avoid the mistakes that he made. And Lord... We know that we all make mistakes. We all are sometimes like Lot. We're sometimes like King David. Even the righteous Abraham, Lord, made some doozers. And yet, Lord, you're always there ready to pick us up. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. We pray that you'll help each of us just to draw closer to you each day as we get to know you more, and that we too, like Abraham, might be called friend of God. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.